I'm Christine Dolan, and I'm a journalist, and I know a lot of people know Mike Lindell because of some of the issues having to do with elections, but I know him in a different way. Last year, in the middle of the 2020 election, my back was killing me because I'm teleworking. So a friend of mine sent me a pillow that Mike Lindell manufactured, and it helped me to sit on a chair doing interviews, too many interviews during the day because we're all working off-site. And then this year, because we're working off-site and we, we all want to be comfortable, I tried Mike Lindell's slippers. Now, I'm a big one on slippers because I like comfort. I have worn moccasin slippers all my life. And when I tried Mike Lindell's slippers, I couldn't believe this because it really does have four layers of cushions. It's like having very loose tennis shoes on. And it's easy because you really do wear them all night long if you're working like me from the early hours of the morning to the late hours at night. So I highly recommend Mike Lindell's slippers and his pillows if you've got a back problem and you're sitting down. Now, how you get the discount for this is very simple. It's on our site. CDM is the promo code for it. Promo code CDM is what we're asking you to do. Again, you will feel comfortable for your back with those little pillows that he has and also for the slippers that you can get from him. And now let's get to our guests. So today in American Conversations, we have our good friend and colleague, Mary Holland, who's the president and general counsel of Children's Health Defense, back with us to do a wrap around the world on everything covid legally and mandates, uh, vaccinations and masks and everything. Mary, let's go back to January 24th while um, we were covering the, the march to defeat the mandates in D.C. You were in Brussels. So right. tell us about that, because you guys held a press conference before yeah. the, 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 the uh, demonstration started and where there were probably 30,000 people in DC. You had over a hundred thousand, I oh, think, absolutely. more in Brussels. I mean, yeah, they 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 quoted it as 50,000 in the press, but the estimates were definitely way over a hundred thousand. People had come from all over Europe and then it was disbanded. So what happened was we had really important activists had come from all over Europe. Reiner Fulmisch from Germany, uh, Justina uh, Warner from the UK, Santa Depoid was there from Brussels, uh, from, from Belgium, uh, Orsolia Giorfi had come from Switzerland. People had come from all over. And, um, we and Vera decided, was there, wasn't she? Vera Schwab came with me from the United States, right? The two of us, I think, were the only people from the United States. Vera Schwab herself, a Holocaust survivor, uh, coming back to Europe. She had been in a camp as a child in Romania. Uh, and um, so we held a really powerful press conference that morning uh, at the Brussels Press Club, you know, in walking distance to the European Parliament. Brussels is really where the European Union's commission meets. So it is sort of the, the governmental center of Europe. And uh, it was really a terrific live broadcast press conference. There were three different panels. People spoke from all over Europe including Vera and me from the United States, about mandates, why they violate human rights, why we were in Europe, why we were in Brussels to protest and so on. And I think, candidly, that it was a very effective uh, press conference, in particular Vera, speaking about the parallels between what had happened in the run-up to the Nazi coup d'etat in Germany, 
then they were elected first. Um, but the parallels between the segregation, the the isolation, the um, stigmatization of people, and you know, it, in those times, it was the Jews, it was the gays, it was um, you know the gypsies, and in today's world, it was it's the unvaccinated, right? And so she drew some of those parallels. And our thought is that that was very, very threatening, Christine. You know, the, the Holocaust is held in a sort of an ahistoric light as if nothing preceded it was that bad and nothing that followed it could have actual parallels to it. And so clearly there was a decision by law enforcement of Brussels not to let the protest go forward because literally within 15 minutes of the start of this, and there was a big stage, there were hundreds of thousands of people, within 15 minutes of it starting, uh, the police were there with tear gas, with water cannons, and with dogs to break it up. And they threatened the organizers by saying, if you don't break this up, we will bring in horses. And we know what happened in Ottawa when they brought right. in people were trampled to death. So, you know, the the organizers appropriately said, okay, we will disband this rally. But it was it was shocking Christine, in the sense that literally, you know, there were two hours worth of speakers and, you know, three speakers had spoken for five minutes. They decided ex ante before it started, we're not going to let these people speak to this audience from all over Europe. Which is, uh, which is, which is shocking because uh, Europeans are so big on human rights. Yeah, I mean, you know, all of this really shows us that these uh, safeguards that we have in place are, are really not as strong as we wish they were. Ultimately, all law comes down to, you know, is it enforceable and is it something that lives within people's hearts and minds? I mean, honestly, that's where it always comes down to. Pieces of paper and even, you know, institutions are only really as good as people are willing to fight for them and make them work. That's right. And and exercise their rights to assembly and to speak yeah. out and to challenge. I mean, that that's yeah. the that's the purpose of the freedom of the press. We're supposed Absolutely. to be we're supposed yes. to be able to challenge and uh, and Listen, the five freedoms in the First Amendment. You know, I have never had more appreciation for those five freedoms ever in my life. And I really do believe, you know, I fought back in the day, um, Christine, for human rights in the then Soviet Union. And uh, I lived in, in Russia and in the Soviet Union for many years. And dissidents would tell me, human rights activists would tell me, you know, the most important freedom is is free expression. The most important one is, you know, free speech and freedom of the press. And I have a dramatically different uh, understanding of that now that we're really living in a highly censored environment. Oh, absolutely. And I can say that as a journalist for 40 plus years, I'm, I'm, I'm stunned as what has yeah. happened to the media. Um, and Mary, that was so that was January 24th. Simultaneously was the day the covering it in Washington. It went fine. 30,000 went great. And I was so thrilled about that. And, and Bobby Kennedy, our chair, spoke and, and many physicians uh, and activists. And it was peaceful. And I know it raised spirits. It was, I think, the largest demonstration in the United States against mandates and in favor of health freedom. And it was historic. It, it is the civil rights movement of, of today. And it did take place along the same lines as the civil rights marches of the 1960s and the I Have a Dream uh, march that Martin Luther King uh, led. So it was historic and, and beautiful. And we had hoped to actually connect those two demonstrations by satellite. And but what we did in Brussels, and I think what's so important in general is, you know, we cannot allow ourselves to be silenced by people like this. So we went back, many of the speakers, we regrouped at a restaurant. <laughs> we had a film crew from Oracle there. 
and we filmed the speeches that we had planned to give from the podium. And in particular, Vera Sharav's speech she was able to give, and it was very powerful. We at Children's Health Defense put that out on the Defender. Um, we translated into six languages, including into Hebrew. And I think her speech has gotten a lot of play around the world. And what she's saying is um, considered taboo in mainstream media, but it is the truth that there are parallels, Christine, to what is happening today, to what happened in Germany in the 1930s. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. You know, as a survivor, if anybody can say that with credibility, it is somebody who lived through it. And uh, so that's her message is never again is now. You know, we've all said since since the Holocaust, never again. Well, never again is now. Right. This segregation, these passports, these, you know, uh, mandates for experimental medications and tests and, and devices. All of this is it's not OK. All of this violates the Nuremberg Code. All of this violates these fundamental human rights to bodily integrity, to bodily autonomy, to parental rights, to free expression, to freedom of assembly. We are seeing in a, a, a terrific very troubling erosion of fundamental rights. And so I'm very happy that someone like Vera is speaking out and saying, we know where this goes, you guys. I lived through it. I don't want to live through this again. I don't want anybody else to live through this again. Wake up now. And I think the good news is, Christine, a lot of people are waking up. Millions, maybe billions of people around the world are waking up. But there's there's a deadline on this, right? Well, there there is a deadline on it, and I and I also think the, the historical parallel to when you have government in bed with industrialists the way that they did back in the 1930s, and we do now when we call them public-private partnerships, That's right? But, but basically, it's corporations driving the the yeah. narrative and the demands um, and and the policies of governments for profit. And, and that's where people have to be very, very careful. I mean, I think the formal word for that is corporatism, but really, you know, Mussolini said corporatism is fascism. I mean, that's, that's right. it's fascism. corporations are running governments for their own profit interests. That is fascism. And mm. that is really what we're seeing. I mean, they call it, you know, stakeholder capitalism and public private partnerships. I mean, those are you. Those, those are those are deflective words. It's like when the Catholic Church would say inappropriate touching when yeah. a priest, right. an adult priest was, was sodomizing a seven year old yeah. little boy yeah. or girl. Yeah. I mean, that, that's that's just it's a use of language that, that doesn't give a reality check Correct. to it. But Mary, then then uh, you returned about a month later to right. Vienna. So did you have the same speakers come back again that we had been in Brussels? So um, it was very inspiring. A young physician from Austria, uh, Maria um, Mog, um, had come to um, Brussels. She had been terminated from her job as a physician in Graz, Austria. And she had organized several large rallies in Austria. And she reached out to Vera Sharab and me and said, would you come? You know, it's not okay that they shut down our rally in Brussels. Will you come to a pan-European rally in um, Vienna? And um, you know, uh, Vera wasn't able to go, but I thought, yes, I, I don't want, you know, those people who silenced us in Brussels to have the day, you know, I don't want them to, to, to win the day. Mm -hmm. So I flew over to Vienna and it was very inspiring, um, Christine. So I was at a demonstration in a beautiful place. It was right in front of this beautiful building um, where the president of the country lives in Austria and Vienna. Mm -hmm. And it was a big open 
plaza and there were at least 15,000 people and they had balloons and there were children and it happened to be a beautiful sunny day, although it was chilly. And and, and in that point in time, you had to have your shots in Austria. Well, at that point in time, there was a mandate that had been passed by law that had not yet taken effect. And the good news is, is of today, Christine, Uh, the government is walking that back and they're saying, no, 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 we're not going to enforce this. They're not giving up the right to be able to enforce it, but they are saying we will not start to enforce this. Um, And but this was a rally against the mandates. And what's very interesting is it was a completely peaceful rally. The law enforcement in Vienna was very respectful. Um, This was a very mainstream crowd of people, Uh, although, you know, the mainstream media is still trying to paint these as extremists and, and, and far right and so on. This was a very mainstream group of people with children there and doctors and scientists and lawyers and, you know, everybody else, farmers, everybody, you name it, business people spoke from the podium and a lot of musicians. Really, it was a very, you know, upbeat, kind of happy gathering of people together. And um, and what people told me in Austria was fascinating. Austria is a country of nine million people. Mm-hmm. It's a small country. It's much smaller than Germany. It's sort of big brother, if you will. Um, and Austria has been more tolerant, although it's had more draconian. It already had passed this universal mandate for every every adult, every person, I think over 14 to get a shot or to get, you know, shots so that they were fully vaccinated. Um, but people explained to me in Austria that they had done a poll of a million people. So a really sizable part of the population, 85, and and it's a highly vaccinated country, right? 75% of the people are vaccinated, but 85% of the people opposed a legal mandate. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had done a poll of police unions and they had done a poll of judges unions. And um, none of these people supported the mandate. So it's, and, and also when I was there, it was shortly after, um, questions had been posed to a constitutional court. So not a Supreme Court, Not they don't hear everything, they hear constitutional questions. And one of the judges on the constitutional court posed 10 very, um, very, very persuasive, very, very important questions to the Department of Health about what is the basis for these mm-hmm. mandates. You know, how, how basically, how safe are they? How effective are they? How much research has been done? And how did you, and I think one or two of the questions said something about what's the proof of you coming yeah, to the conclusion they, they, that they should be mandated? They were, they were great questions. They were great questions. And I was told in Austria that they were posed by the one judge on the constitutional court who wasn't vaccinated, but they were very penetrating, good questions. And um, the the Department of Health and the health minister, Mookstein, did respond in a 70-page response. I'm told, I can't read the German, that the responses were somewhat evasive. But as of today, the New York Times is suggesting that, um, you know, and there was going to be a fine that was imposed if people failed. And then if you couldn't pay the fines, you could end up in jail for not vaccinating. And the government has walked this back and they have suspended any... um, any enforcement saying, oh, you know, Omicron is different and there's no need for us to enforce this right now. So it's probably a combination of factors, but this is fantastic news, Christine, right? This is fantastic news that Austria, which was one of the countries at the forefront of this sort of mandate mania, has really walked it back. But that said, I'm in touch with 
I was just on a call with people, you know, other people in Europe and Italy in particular is um, very, you know, draconian, right? So everybody there over age 50 must be vaccinated or they can't access public transportation. They can't uh, work. They can't, you know, do basically anything except for buy groceries. And even that is very difficult if people, for instance, live on islands, as many people do, and they have to go to the mainland to get their food supply. So Italy is, is very draconian right now. Um, Greece has a mandate for people over 60. So that's very draconian. It's a universal mandate. And again, let's remember, these are not um, these are not vaccines that were, you know, researched in any really rigorous way. I mean, a typical vaccine has a lot of injuries associated with it. And it was researched for 10 years. These were less than a year. So, you know, under the Nuremberg Code, from my perspective, everything that's happening is absolutely uh, in violation of law. Law says you can't coerce somebody. The consent of the individual is absolutely essential. That's the right. essence of the Nuremberg Code, which has been embodied into U.S. federal you state. You have to have informed consent. And if you yeah, can't, not real, you can't coerce. It's not consent if it's coerced. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's right. just not. So, you know, obviously this and, and the, the rationale is, oh, well, you know, you don't have a constitutional right to your job. Well, yeah, but it's still coercion. You know? That's right. It is coercion. So let's 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 focus on. I mean, one question I do have for you, though, in relative to that. What about tourists? If tourists go to Italy. So so it's changing. It's very interesting. So the Green Pass is also has been put in place. So what's the Green Pass has been put in place and the European Union is still moving forward on a green pass, so-called, meaning a vaccine passport. They are still absolutely marching. But that's for, that's, but th- what about tourists from Canada? Yeah, but again, they're not really enforcing that right now. So people now are able, I believe, to go to Europe uh, without having been vaccinated. I'm not sure where things are in terms of like the testing. When I flew there a little bit, you know, 10 days ago, I still had to provide proof of a test. I believe that now Austria doesn't have either the proof of a test or proof of recovery or vaccination. But the overall march towards sort of the passport system has not stopped. And I think we all have to really recognize that, you know, the World Health Organization is talking about right now a pandemic treaty. Um, The European Union is talking about the Green Pass. In the United States, the Biden administration is talking about putting money into future pandemic preparedness. So this sort of onslaught of the pandemic uh, sort of paradigm is is not going away And, and now is from my perspective, now is an opportunity for us, those of us who oppose these kinds of, you know, mandates, now is an opportunity to really work very hard while there is a little bit more freedom of association and movement and a little bit of focus now on world events on the war uh, in Ukraine rather than the focus on COVID. It's, it, we should not let up the pressure because oh. this has not gone away at all. It's simply kind of reformatting itself. So I want to pivot to sort of the substance of um, something that's happening in the midst of that calendar from January to February, which is mm-hmm. on February 15th. Uh, the FDA was to, was was to authorize, yeah. and correct me if I have the wrong legal language, Mary, but authorize uh, the approval of the Pfizer uh, shots for six months to five years of age. And the, and the FDA requested from Pfizer to pull back that that action at that point in time. So now it's been moved down the line to April. 
we we hosted CDM and American Conversations. Todd and myself hosted an event in Atlanta just two weeks ago, and we talked about that because it's getting people to understand the level of corruption that has been involved and the and the breach of the normal protocols of doing research for approvals. And in the midst of all this, we have parallel to that, we have the what I call the Pfizer document dumps. Give the audience a little bit of background about that case and the significance of that, because we're right in the middle of this authorization has been moved to April, but this is ongoing for people to get educated about what's going on in the Pfizer. Sure. So just let me just clarify that. So yes, there was a question that was supposed to go to the FDA expert committee on vaccines to authorize this vaccine. So it's already been authorized for everybody age five and up. Mm -hmm. And they'd done research. They wanted to authorize it for six months to five years. And the reality was the data just wasn't there. There was really, it didn't show any positive effect. The doses were relatively small and they were potentially going to authorize this for three doses when they hadn't even tested three doses because two doses didn't work. And remarkably, we, Children's Health Defense and others were involved in advocacy campaigns to write to these people at the FDA, write to Health and Human Services, tell them this is outrageous. They're not following the science, their tagline. And, and on the Friday before the Monday, they pulled back. And interestingly, it actually, Christine, it wasn't Pfizer that asked the FDA to the have FDA. that offensive. The FDA asking Pfizer. Right. So this is pushed back to April. And to be uh, the U.S. has apparently already bought doses of this, these these products for these infants and young children. But I think we don't know what's going to happen in April. Actually, I really feel like we don't know what's going to happen. Um, but there was a second half of your question. Oh, it was about the data. Uh, but, uh, but in relative to that movement, we also have simultaneously the Pfizer document dumps right. in the public. So, let me so there are two different cases um, in which a lot of documents have been revealed. The main case is a case that was brought on behalf of a group that formed called the Public Health Scientists and Doctors for Transparency, something like that. And they filed a case in Texas. And they said, listen, you, you FDA, you have licensed the Pfizer vaccine and you call it community. It's not available. You've licensed it. So you need to make the documents on which you made that licensure decision available to the American public. And the FDA said, oh, no, 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 no. That's going to take us 55 years. And then Pfizer stepped in and Pfizer became an interview like, no, 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 no. That'll take us 75 years. And to his great credit, Judge Mark Pittman said, no, guys, you guys you know, you approved this, the public, the public paid for this, the public has a right to see the documents. So some documents came out, I think, in December, or November, and the, the first tranche of documents showed us that 1200 people had died, Christine, in the first 90 days of the use of this vaccine. So horrific information. And the latest documents that just came out, so the judge set a schedule of like 1000s of pages on the monthly basis, the documents that just came out at, before March 1st showed us the list of um, adverse events that they are looking for that could be related to the Pfizer shots. It's a nine page long list, Christine. It's, I mean, it's over 1,200, over 1,200 adverse effects. And there's some so questions. Those are the things that have... 
they haven't all been reported to Pfizer, apparently, Christine. It's written in a very, it's, it's phrased in a very vague way. These are things that may have been, you know, reported to other institutions, including the Brighton Collaboration and theirs. But the bottom line is it's nine pages of adverse events, including death. I mean, I don't know. And the other thing that I think is also coming out right now that's very significant is insurance companies are, are around the world, in Europe and the United States, are saying we had death rates in 2021, particularly in the second half of 2021, that were unprecedented. As right. one guy said from one life insurance company based in Indiana, he said, you know, if we had a 10% rise, that would be a one in 200 year, you know, event. They had a 40% rise. And right. looking at German insurance companies, they are also experiencing death rate increases of between 20 and 250% in 2021. And, and, and there was, was not, not COVID cases. The age Sorry? bracket was, for a lot of these, were 18 yeah. to 50. This is working age people. These are mm -hmm. people who would have been induced or coerced into getting vaccinated. So there's, and these people did not die of COVID. So there is a very strong correlation between these vaccine mandates and the, this staggering, unprecedented rate of death. Really, the only analogy is to wartime, is what these insurance companies are saying. So there's really, between the FDA and Pfizer not wanting to make these documents available, between their insistence on liability protection and actually not making licensed vaccines available where they might, for the moment, have some mm -hmm. liability, and then this evidence of these massive deaths that insurance companies are, are coming up with, the evidence that there is fraud going on here is very significant, very significant evidence. And, you know, our job as advocacy and litigation organizations is to pursue this rigorously because people are dying from these things. Not only that, but we know from when that when Pfizer has their list of 1200 plus adverse effects to look for, that some of them are neurological, some of them are vascular. And we know from the vax injured, at least I know this from the vax injured I have interviewed now for you know yeah. over a year all over the world, that the that there are multiple injuries for everybody who gets hurt and uh, has a reaction. And also many times it's vascular, many times it's neurological. And the FDA here in the United States for the US shots has not, acknowledged the vascular or the neurological adverse effects the way that they have the cardio for the heart inflammation. Mm -hmm. So the F in the FDA has 50% of its budget paid for by the U S pharmaceutical companies yeah. for their own tests for research that is to be submitted to the FDA. And we know that there is probably just like with Pfizer, we know that we probably are going to have this with Moderna and we're going to have this with J&J. &J. And this is not new. I mean, we, we have to, I, the, people have to understand this, Mary. Historically, there have, has been billions of dollars paid out by pharmaceutical companies for not giving the real information to the FDA in the past. So this is not new. This is a pattern uh, of corruption that they have had to pay for. So I don't even know how I, I don't even know what these people are thinking at the board level 
that they think that they could get away with this? Well, well Christine, it's important, a couple things. So, you know, the four biggest um, producers of vaccines, Pfizer, Merck, Glaxo, Sanofi, Pester, they've paid themselves over 33 billion in criminal and civil fines, right? So these companies do not have a reputation for honesty. On the contrary, they have a reputation mm -hmm. for dishonesty and fraud and paying bribes and other, you know, unethical business practices. What is so unique about the, the sort of classification of vaccines is A, under federal law and at this point global norm practice, they can be mandated. They've never been mandated on this scale. They've never been mandated for the general public as adults in recent last hundred years, but they can be mandated. And then in the United States, starting in 1986 and then amped up in 2005, there's complete, virtually complete liability protection. Think about it. And then, as you point out, basically, the pharmaceutical industry pays 50% of the FDA's budget as user's fees. And then there's an FDA foundation into which these corporations pour money. So de facto, it's more than 50% of the budget is paid for by the very industry that they're allegedly regulating. Well, come on. Right. You know, right, I mean, right. Who are we kidding, right? right. Who are we that's, kidding? That's a, that's, has this great line of like, you know, if the, half the EPA's budget were paid for by the coal industry, you know, you'd start to see what we're seeing in this realm. I mean, it's, and I don't know if you saw, but there was a recent undercover um, interview that was done by Project Veritas, and one can be critical of their methods, but, you know, it was this guy at the FDA who works in the countermeasures division, and he was saying straight up, oh, yeah, you have no career if you don't green light these drugs, and, you know, our job is to make sure they get to market. I mean, he, he was very explicit. It's like, yeah, pharmacy yeah. control. I mean, he was very upfront. Well, and, and that's true. And and that's and we're talking to people that are inside the pharmaceutical industry. We even had a pharma whistleblower that was on our stage in Atlanta, you know, two weeks ago. Uh, and, and it's very interesting because that it's not one of the COVID shot manufacturing pharmaceutical companies, but it also is a pharma. Uh, but there, this one was in oncology and they were having mandated within their company all over the United States, except for in Florida and um, Texas for the employees. And then she was, somebody said, you know, you ought to talk to Christine Dolan. And I found out that their company was connected to the Gates Foundation. Their company uh, was, was into mRNA vaccines in the future. And that in fact, the president of their US company here, because it's a Japanese parent company, uh, sits on the board of the Pharmaceutical Manufacturing and Research Association. So, of course, he was going to mandate as much as he possibly could. You know, there's a very interesting article that we published in The Defender by a really good reporter, Michael Nevridakis, who's been writing for us. And he really shows us that the companies that have mandated these shots after the, the Supreme Court in the United States said there's no longer, you know, it was unlawful to mandate them for corporations over 100. The ones that have continued to mandate that have major stakes in, among their shareholders of BlackRock and Vanguard. Right. And those when that don't have BlackRock and Vanguard, two of the biggest three, you know, asset managers in the world, um, they they've dropped the mandates. Right. Companies in, in, you know, what company really wants to lose good employees because they won't take an experimental medication? It's those ones that are invested in the mandates right. and in this sort of MRA future. And those are companies that are basically that have a major control issue with these big asset managers that are all behind the vaccines and the whole new paradigm.
Right. And it's unethical because that's put that's putting people over profits or profits over yeah. people, I should say. Yeah. So Mary, um, people are often asking, and you're the person to go to for all the legal things going on having to do with COVID. Is there anybody that's taking a look at this from a criminal point of view? Absolutely. I mean, I, all over the world, people are filing criminal complaints. Um, criminal investigations have been opened in a variety of companies, uh, countries rather. And I do believe that there are, particularly at the attorney general level in the United States, there are definitely attorney general's offices that are looking at this. Um, you know, I think it's going to take a little bit more, um, Christine, and certainly there are people like for instance, Dr. Richard Fleming, who has given a you know deposition under oath about the criminality of this. Complaints have been filed at the International Criminal Court. I mean, there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes. I'm not aware of any criminal action that has yet been filed that looks like it's going to be successful or that it's leading you know in the near term to a trial. But the fact that criminal behavior has occurred here to my mind is unquestionable. I mean, you know, not only have people put profits ahead of people, but I believe that people have knowingly put people's lives on the line and they've knowingly and recklessly beyond it's beyond gross negligence. I do believe there has been, you know, willful intentional misconduct, putting people's lives at risk for money. I mean, well, and I think we see that in particular in the hospital context, in particular in the hospital context where, you know, people were deprived of life-saving medicines and they were given extremely toxic or dangerous treatments and people have died. You know, people have died and, and, and the hospitals made big money on that, right? The hospitals did. money did. on every step of that process. And, and, you know, people have to ask, and that this hasn't affected everybody in every community, every hospital or every family, but the mere fact that you have cases, people had to go to court if, there were, if their loved one was in the hospital, you didn't have a choice. You didn't have a choice as a patient, as an advocate for your loved one to get alternative treatment because the hospital had a policy and they were making money yeah. off of that policy and people then had to go to court. It was the most amazing. Well, they didn't always win in court, Christine. I mean, I know families right. that did go to court and they lost and, and their loved one died. I mean, mm -hmm. this, this has been outrageous, right? One of the things that we're most concerned about um, from a legal and ethical and moral, you know, moral point of view is the suppression of life-saving treatment modalities. You know, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine work as early treatments and they were suppressed. And then drugs like remdesivir were made the standard of care and they're exceptionally toxic. I mean, and that's, you know, that is, I remember, I remember the day I was watching Fauci sitting and Trump was still president. Right. Fauci was on the sofa yep. and, and Trump was in the room and Dr. Briggs was sitting to his left right. and, he, and he's talking about remdesivir being a success. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa, because it does put you at a higher risk of death. Mm -hmm. That has always been known about remdesivir. It attack, it can attack your kidneys. It can shut down your kidneys. And I thought to myself, this is the best he can come up with. And, and here's another, you know, this is anecdotal, but people are looking at this now. People have talked about ivermectin being used for early treatment. But having interviewed so many vaccines injured over and, and, and nobody's cured. Everybody I've interviewed hasn't been cured yet. Yeah. People are so desperate that they have resorted to ivermectin, even for those that couldn't walk. And the ivermectin has helped them even yeah. for the yeah. long haul yeah. yes. injured. 
Yes, the, the ivermectin definitely seems to be helpful for people with long COVID. Um, and it's very important. Long COVID, long COVID, but also long haul vax injured. Well, yes, 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 yes. I mean, the symptoms are often very <clears throat> They are. Absolutely. They're, and they're being studied that way. And, and then yes. at the same time, when it has helped some of these people, then they can't get them. They can't get ivermectin because they're basically, and you know, well, even if you tell Yes. Your doctor says you have lupus, you can't get ivermectin in some, some instances because the pharmacies just will not write. You know, this results, and, and Bobby D Kennedy describes this very well in his book, The Real Anthony Fauci. You know, there was a single solution and everything during the whole pandemic was so that you, you choose one choice. And that is you take this, you know, mRNA or this viral vector vaccine with a novel technology that's never been properly tested. I mean, that was the end point to which all pointed. And, you know, in, in the big picture from their perspective, Christine, it's been remarkably successful, right? I mean, billions of people around the world have taken these interventions and huge amounts of money got siphoned up to the ultra elite of the world. And uh, they've made huge progress in sort of normalizing um, these mandates and normalizing lockdowns and normalizing passports and tests and mandatory masks. I mean, yeah. an enormous amount has shifted in the last two years. We're in a sort of, I think, a momentary respite. But I don't think they're really letting up on the paradigm at all. The paradigm they want to stay and they keep, you know, Biden and the World Health Organization and EU and European Medicines Agency, they're all talking about the next pandemic. And they're talking about how they want to be able to come out with a new vaccine within 100 days. This is their new crazy idea, right? You have this new pandemic within a hundred days, we're gonna have the solution. Well, if it's like this last one, you know, you count me out. Well, not only that, but the same people that the same people that want to have this international treaty, which is akin to the Paris Climate Accord, they're all the same group of people. That's what people don't understand. And they're the same group of people that on the national level had these insidious, unsuccessful policies across the world, country by country. And it's the same group of people that want to control and want to assume that one shoe fits all. Yeah. I mean, just the notion that, you know, one medication, one dose is going to be one size of, you know, one kind of like certain, I mean, it just boggles the mind. So much of this, it just eradicates the doctor patient relationship. And this is something that our friend Meryl Nass talks about at length. It's like President Biden in his state of the union said, we're going to have tests to treat. So the idea is you go to your pharmacy, you get a positive COVID test, you may or may not have been vaccinated, and then they're going to give you a medication for free, Christine, that costs us taxpayers $700, and you will never have consulted with a doctor. God only knows if there's a contraindication for you and you shouldn't be taking that medication because of a sensitivity and an allergy, and you may die. I mean, they're cutting doctors out of the loop. Doctors have not, for the most part, been heroes, although there have certainly been doctor heroes in this saga. But they're basically cutting doctors out of medicine their man the government is sort of stepping in as your doctor and I hope that's what that's nervous. why no government should control anything having to do with medicine or health we have we have nuked the health industry we have nuked the medical industry and they're intimidating doctors for not telling the truth about what they have done on the inside, because is you you've introduced me to these hundreds of doctors who have, when they have 
been when they have written exemptions and people report them to the medical boards and the medical boards are controlled by farmers and the governors who are getting money from the pharma and then they 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 go after their licenses because they don't follow the protocol of the CDC because they do believe in that doctor patient relationship these people can lose their licenses and what the public doesn't understand if you're part of that exemption list for that by that doctor if that doctor loses his or her license, all of those exemptions are retroactively are canceled. So, I mean, this is a real racket. It's a racket. It's a racket. There's no, there's no other way to say it. This is like, this is like being up against the mafia, but it, but it's supposed to look normal because it's quote unquote in civilization and everybody has bowed down to the medical divinity of whoever the hell these people are. And, and, you know, I think the mafia um, analogy is particularly apt because if you deprive doctors of the ability to write medical exemptions in states like New York and California and Maine, children are not eligible for religious exemptions. Right. Then if a child can't get a medical exemption and that child gets a vaccine, that child may die. I mean, mm -hmm. vaccines kill people as well as potentially help some people. They kill some people. And if you need a medical exemption and your doctor is intimidated and won't write it, you're putting that person's life at risk. And, you know, this is what's happening around the country. They, they, these medical boards, which are basically infiltrated by pharma, there's no question, there's now a federation of med state medical boards. Mm -hmm. You know, they, these people are... Um, the, these these people the doctors are not willing to help their patients they and they and and they're right their their licenses are put on the line and and so this is just it, this is really it's it's going to kill people but i think the longer that this goes on the more people are they realize something's wrong with it they didn't understand what it was i mean when i've spoken to people even in the news business there even some of them are waking up to that realizing god this really this this really is as bad as you suspected it was. And I said, no, it's worse than I suspected, but it's yeah. so deep and complicated because you, you have this international level. You Nobody still today knows exactly how this all started. Although there's more and more, I mean, I'm, believe, I'm beginning to believe more and more, this was a lab configuration. There's oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, think, I think that's pretty clear by now. The most recent evidence of that, Christine, I don't know if you saw, is, uh, you know, now the uh, Stefan Bonsell, the head of Moderna, has acknowledged that the sequence that is found in the SARS-CoV-2, they had patented in 2000, and I think it was 16. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, and he now is saying, oh, yeah, maybe it was a lab leak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I and I I hope to God that some people on the boards of some of these pharmaceutical companies wake up because when this shoe falls, they're not gonna, it's it's not gonna stop right there at the C-suite. It's not gonna stop at the sales level. It's gonna go right up to the board. And everybody, the most important question people have to ask in an investigation is who knew what and when? And yeah, what I, did they do about yeah. it? Because for fraud, for RICO on this level. It doesn't matter whether you knew and participated, it's whether or not you should have known because of the position of authority you have as a fiduciary board member to that organization. I mean, this this could get very, very, very out of control in terms of complicity. I agree. No, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about this has affected billions of people around the planet. And the reality is, Christine, these things were tested for a matter of months. We don't know what the long-term effects are. We just don't. I and know. I think 
sadly, we're going to be finding out over the next many years. And I think there's going to be side effects that, you know, are very, very, very tragic. It is. We have to pray for everybody because we, we're, this is the soul of humanity that we're trying to get to the bottom of all of this. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. You have thank to come back. We have to do these updates because I know you're busy all the time. Sure. But it's always it's always good to see you. Likewise. Thanks.